0: Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States.
1: Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Canusa Street. It's good to be back with you. You know, we take a different issue each episode, a different issue related to Canada-US relations. And sometimes we say we're excited uh, to have our conversation. The conversation today is is a somber one, an important one, and one of the defining elements of Canada-US relations over the last couple of decades. We're going to talk about Afghanistan. And as we record this episode, uh, troops have pulled out of Afghanistan. There's a lot of aftermath happening. Um, But I think we want to talk about how we got there in the first place, the Canada-U.S. element. We'll probably do a couple of episodes on it. So anyway, I'm um, really honored to be joined by our guest today. Uh, and I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Chris Sands, for a proper introduction of our guests. And then we'll get right into the dialogue. So over to you, Chris. <laughs>
2: Well, thanks very much, Scotty. And I'm really pleased that we're taking on this topic. A lot of people know about the war in Afghanistan, but for Americans, sometimes the Canadian contribution doesn't stand out. So just a couple of basic facts. The war in Afghanistan ran from 2001 to 2014 in terms of Canada's involvement, and it was Canada's longest war ever, and its first significant combat engagement since the Korean War. Um, After the 2001 uh, September 11 attacks. Uh, Canada got involved in a broad mission to um, to help secure and stabilize Afghanistan and respond to Al Qaeda. More than 40,000 members of the Canadian Armed Forces served in a 12, in the 12-year campaign, which had multiple phases in Afghanistan, and the war resulted in 165 Canadians, of whom 158 were soldiers and seven civilians died. Um, Many Canadian veterans of the war are still carrying that with them, and I know it's been a very tough time uh, for a lot of them to see what's been going on in Afghanistan. We're very lucky to have our two amazing guests. I'll start with um, Colonel... Charles Chuck Hamel, who was an infantry officer of the Canadian Forces with over 42 years of service and 1,000 days in combat operations, notably in Congo and also in Afghanistan, two tours. Um, He had extremely distinguished service, and for those Americans out there, he uh, earned the U.S. Bronze Star and Meritorious Service Medals from both the U.S. government and the government of Afghanistan. Um, He's now a volunteer, is involved in a number of great causes. He's sort of a lifelong volunteer, a serial volunteer, if you will, but he's working with the Military Family Resource Center, uh, the Friends of the Colonel Belcher Society, Opportunity International Canada, and uh, Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan just to name a few. So he's still quite engaged on these issues. He's here with his good friend um, and high school pal, Neil McDonald, who many Canadians know, uh, longtime CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Washington correspondent. His career began with the CBC back in 1976, uh, covered six elections, uh, uh, six prime ministers and he, oh, I'm sorry. He actually joined the CBC in 1988, uh, but his career began in 76. Sorry about that, Neil. Um, and he's been reporting on federal politics for the national, but he, uh, he also covered the Afghan war, both from the DC side and then talking about it in Canada. So couldn't ask for better guests and we're really delighted to have them over to you.
1: Thank you, Chris. So, um, thank, thank both of our guests. And I think we'll start with you, Chuck. Um and just starting with the most recent and then maybe going back in time what was your reaction and what was going through your mind um when the US and the allies announced just recently that the war would end um and that they would bring um bring troops home what was your how did you feel about that
3: I was a little disappointed and dismayed and not outraged like so many other Canadians were my perspective was one that was a bit more uh, subtle. And the reason being is because um, in my mind's eye, it, this could have been predicted. And if you look at it through the lens of Afghans, uh, Afghanistan's history, you come to realize that this is in fact, just a, a blip in uh, their uh, very difficult history. I immediately, well, got involved in trying to get some of our interpreters uh, relocated back in Canada. Uh, Again, it wasn't an outrage as the general public or as the media portrayed it, because our program, uh, like the American program, I think it was the uh, special immigration visas, the CIVs, uh, we had something similar uh, that went back five years. Some of the interpreters and so on took advantage of that and came over, but the vast majority uh, basically wanted to stay in in their homeland. And uh, they were caught off guard uh, like we were. So I am um, optimistic that in time, uh, those that are at risk or that want to leave Afghanistan will get that opportunity and they will be welcomed uh, here in Canada.
1: And just thanks for that, Chuck. And just to follow up before I turn it over to Neil for his thoughts. When you say you were disappointed, were you disappointed with the policy decision to end the war, or were you disappointed with the execution of how it went down, or both?
3: My biggest disappointment, to tell you the honest truth, is related to the ongoing work I did when I came back from Afghanistan, and more specifically with an organization like the Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan, which I'll speak to a little later on. So they were there before We got there in 2001. They were there some five years before dealing with this whole issue about uh, girls and education and literacy. And, uh, you know, I'm very familiar um, with the investments that they made and the successes that they've had in that regard. And uh, to see it all just vaporize just disappear almost instantly yeah I mean the the, what really the what's going uh, to happen uh, to
1: women and girls in Afghanistan screens. is a huge a huge concern Neil talk to us a little bit about your frame of mind how do you how do you think about Afghanistan how do you put the whole situation in context of of other conflicts that you've covered what are your what are your thoughts about it today
0: well I don't have the same sort of moral authority on this that Chuck has. I mean, he walked the walk um, over there. Uh, my, I, I am not an Afghan expert, uh, an expert in Afghanistan. I am, however, an expert in the Middle East. I spent five years there, and I covered conflicts in just about every country. And I've, I, I suppose, I've done the equivalent of a master's level um, uh, degree in 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 reading and researching the history of the area. I speak the language, and there are overlaps. When Chuck says it was somewhat predictable it was entirely predictable i remember when the bush administration went into afghanistan and was considering going into iraq uh, my next door neighbor was an american diplomat in jerusalem who was an expert uh, he was an arabist and he said uh, he said guys like me and my cohort of of arabists at the at the state department and i know afghans are not arabs Um, generally speaking, these days, we keep our heads down and our mouths shut and hope we can hang on to our jobs because the White House already knows all the answers. Um, It doesn't want to hear from experts. What happened in Afghanistan was the U.S. went in and set up a Potemkin army, much like Israel did in Lebanon. And I was there when the Israelis left Lebanon. The SLA, the Falangist militia, they set up They stood up in the south of Lebanon, faded away within three hours. They were all across the border in Israel by nightfall, even though the Israelis had said they will be the bulwark against terrorism and they'll stand firm and they'll be brave and they're well trained. It's the same thing. I mean, when when you've got people who are basically stood up by a foreign country and paid and trained against an indigenous, often religiously motivated army, uh, there's no doubt about who's going to win um uh, and 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 beyond that the idea of changeability in that part of the world i mean i i would challenge anyone to tell me and maybe christopher you can tell me tell me one example of the united states intervening in that part of the world successfully
1: well i mean osama bin laden is gone so i mean the, the, i don't want to say the mission Let's let's separate out the the mission. from But
0: he was he was created by the United States of America just as much as Hamas was created by Israel. And for some of the same reasons.
1: Well, I mean, okay, we can we can have a debate about that, Neil. But if they hadn't
0: been supplying the insurgents in Afghanistan with modern weapons uh, in a proxy war with the Soviets, Osama bin Laden probably wouldn't have existed. Now, there are extraneous. There are extraneous factors, but I'm just saying here that, uh, I, in, in my view at least, um, these kinds of interventions don't work, especially in ancient societies that are tribal. Winston Churchill drew a lot of green lines on a map after the First World War, and I can tell you that didn't work out very well. It, it was permanent, it worked, but it didn't work out well. So yeah. trying to change well, the ancient societies is just a bad idea, and I, Charles, Chuck and I have disagreed on this in private conversations in the past. He believed in the mission in Afghanistan, I didn't.
1: Yeah, well, so let's bring it back to Chuck for a second, and and Chuck, a Canadian uh, officer, um, served over there side by side with U.S. forces. Talk to us a little bit about that. How? What? What? What is the collaboration like? What was it like? What's your experience? Um, you know, with Canada and U.S. working together, it's a talking point for people like Chris and me. You know, about shoulder to shoulder in Afghanistan. But but what is it really like? What was your experience like?
3: It was a very positive experience. Like you said, shoulder to shoulder. I was uh, accepted. Uh, I, first of all, I was totally embedded in the u.s organization both from the military perspective and on the political side as well with the embassies and and so on i personally thought that we worked very well as a team and i know that the uh my counterparts uh my battle buddies appreciated having a canadian on board (laughs) one of the things that uh they took liberties of using me for, was when they had a contentious suggestion to bring up uh, at meetings with commanding generals and so on, they often passed the idea on to me. So I would voice it and articulate it and they wouldn't have to deal with the wrath falling on them. So uh, yeah, I took that on, that challenge on, uh, and, and made my contribution accordingly. And I hope that we're going to have an opportunity to talk about some of the successes. Uh, and I'm kind of leaning towards the provincial reconstruction teams. And that merits considerable review. Uh, you must remember that that whole concept actually started started during the wars. I won't go back that far, uh, the World Wars that is, but uh, in Vietnam, that was a very successful project at the very end uh, of the Vietnam conflict. Uh, if I recall correctly, it was called the Cords. And that was the precursor of uh, today's uh, PRTs.
0: Chuck, can you so, talk about, uh, about, about the money that was given to you to for development and the direction you got on how to spend it?
3: Yeah, so in the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, In my first tour back in uh, 2005-2006, I had this title, Director of Civil-Military Affairs Division of the uh, Combined Forces uh, Command Afghanistan. Really what that was was the CJ9 position. And we had ministry engagement teams that were in all the different uh, ministries. And I was also responsible for the PRT policy team and the working groups. Uh, one of my duties was also to manage the SERP, uh, the, the Commander's Emergency uh, Relief uh, Program. And uh, basically, the instructions that I got was, uh, here's a half a billion dollars year in, year out, and, and go forth and do good.
1: That's a lot of soccer fields to build, half a billion dollars well, a year.
3: Uh, i got to tell you quite honestly, (laughs) there was a lot to be done. Because in terms of strategic infrastructure, you know, as opposed to a lot of other countries, uh, was virtually non-existent. There could have been significant uh, more money, and there was. And that money was all with USAID. So Mm -hmm. it was a question of uh, coordinating efforts with what USAID was doing, and uh, what the military was doing. And that coordinated Nation uh, was done through the U.S. Embassy, and uh, it, was, it was wanting uh, because there was just so much to do and, and really not enough money. Um, but some of the lessons that were learned out of there were quite significant. One of them uh, was the money was probably used more towards force protection of our own forces instead of development.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So,
3: The problem with that was the non-permissive areas or provinces and so on actually received more money than the permissive areas. So what do you think happened?
1: Yeah.
3: All the other provinces became non-permissive. Kinetic events going on. IEDs, yes. bombings, killings, and so on. Uh, that would be a non-permissive environment. And you would
1: spend money uh, to protect our forces um, yes. when there are kinetic events happening versus when it's... So, there, so in other words, there was, a, there was almost a, um, an incentive towards violence in a weird way if you wanted to get the money.
3: Well, it was almost a, a policy of um, reinforcing failure and I hope that that's one of the lessons that is taken away uh, f- from uh, this conflict and so many others.
2: That I'm going to jump in on that because I, I don't know if you would have seen it, but at uh, Andrew Potter at McGill, he's part of the Max Bell School, had a piece in Policy Options, and he he summed up Afghanistan by saying, you know, the case for the success of Canada's involvement in Afghanistan was that it strengthened in useful ways the relationship between Canada and the United States. And I know you saw this from different sides. Chuck, you were on the ground. Neil, you were covering this at the you know government to government level. Do you think that's borne out in your experience that the U.S. and Canada you know, suffering together or trying to do this together, they, there was some reinforcement of the bilateral relationship? Or do you think because of disagreements about how it went, maybe it pushed us farther apart? Uh, Potter Chuck-
0: is right. I moved to Washington from the Middle East in 2003. Uh, and uh, Colin, I think it was Colin Robertson at the embassy who dreamed up this this campaign where they put up gigantic banners in the Foggy Bottom Metro Station and the Metro Center saying boots on the ground. Remember the boots on the ground? Mm -hmm. And it it seemed to me, and again, I'm not an insider, but I covered these things. It seemed to me that I'm always fascinated by the reasons for going to war or going to a conflict. I mean, the Israelis do it for a very pragmatic reason. Um, When Canada does it, it's 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 often to impress somebody or it has been since basically since the Second World War. And even then, I suppose. But, you know, uh, Charlie Chuck, sorry. I mean, I used to call him Charlie when we were kids. We have completely different perspectives. He fought on the ground. I covered these things at the governmental level and as a war correspondent. And I used to watch. I've seen lots of soldiers get killed maybe not as many as Chuck but plenty and and then i hear their their politicians and their parents say they died for freedom and how 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 does that add up if you got blown apart in some dusty nowhere backwater in iraq or afghanistan and and with a, with a with a it's almost like the chronicle of a death foretold you know what's going to happen if you're a student of history at all and i always felt so bad for soldiers who were in good faith trying to make a difference. But, you know, we're in fact, in my view, anyway, serving a political purpose that was a little more jaded. And, and I say that with all respect to what Jack did for a living for that many years. He went into danger that, well, we both went into danger, but of different kinds. And I just, I guess you have to believe it if you're a soldier, and you don't have to believe it if you're a journalist. I don't. I, I would quite seriously question uh, what good it did the Canadian people beyond economic links with the Americans going to Afghanistan and, and and you know, good on Jean Chrétien for not going to Iraq. That would have turned out really well, wouldn't it?
2: Chuck, what was the feeling on the ground, uh, you know, soldiers, soldier to <laughs> soldier?
3: Well, I got to tell you quite honestly, I mean, the Canadians took over the, the PRT in Kandahar. Uh, When I was there on my first tour, and we felt really good about relieving the Americans of that uh, specific PRT, which was probably one of the most important ones. And and being involved in, uh, well, uh, into the uh, the most uh, non-permissive part uh, of Afghanistan at the time. And uh, it kind of said, hey, the Americans trust us uh they uh, they trust our soldiers are uh, good enough to uh, to hold the fort and uh, to, to have an effect, a positive effect uh, on the outcome. So um, and the other thing that it did, of course, was it permitted the Canadian military to bring back all the capabilities that we got rid of, before the afghanistan war in other words we had very little indirect fire uh, capability in other words we got rid of all our artillery pieces uh, when we were in afghanistan's so we got the m109 uh sorry the triple uh, sevens which is basically the same uh, interoperable weapon system as the u.s was do- using we got rid of all our tanks we got rid of our uh huey helicopters we got rid of uh, our sorry, our Chinook helicopters, and all of these capabilities we had to uh, bring back in uh, to the theater of operations. So, of course, that made the soldiers happy. Uh, the problem is that all of those capabilities right now are uh, rusting out, and I'm not sure if they're going to be sustained. Um, so, uh, all in all, bottom line, uh, it was a positive. Um, Relationship between the Americans and Canadians, and for that matter, all the coalition partners. You know, I I look at you know uh, uh, even your title, hindsight up front, lessons and implications of withdrawing from Afghanistan.
2: That's uh, that's one of our Wilson programs. We're we're looking back at Afghanistan, but there you are, yes.
3: But you know, it's sort of the Americans left Afghanistan. No, no, no. It was the, it was the coalition. And, you know, you had 60 countries that stepped up. Uh, mm-hmm. So when we're saying that uh, the Americans lost the war, uh, wait a minute here.
1: <laughs> it, yeah.
3: it was half the countries in the world just about that were involved. And we all lost as well, blood and treasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, was it a complete loss? I'd like to think that... Uh, it allows us to move forward uh, into thinking about, uh, hopefully, thinking about this conflict in a different light, and hopefully, we get to that a little later on in this interview.
1: Well, ma- Chuck, maybe let's 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 go there, and let me ask this question, and then you can take us in whatever direction you want. But you said something, you know, thinking about the future. Uh, you said something that reminded me, I was talking to a a Canadian official who was with CETA, the Canadian International Development Authority or agency, whatever that stands for, the the Canadian version of USAID, who said you know, Canada was was in there building schools and educating girls um, for many years. And the schools that were named for local people and local things um, survived shelling. And the schools that some of the coalition forces named after U.S. You know, or coalition, you know, Western kind of names uh, were targets actually, and but but that one of the most regrettable things is what what does happen to to women and girls going forward um, who are who are still there and some of them who spent their whole life thinking um, you, you know not as part of Taliban rule. What what do you think the future is um, based on everything that's transpired over the last twenty years? I won't go back to. Neil McDonald channeling Rand Paul, channeling no, you know, no intervention for a hundred years. But so what, what do you think, what do you think is going to happen uh, for women and girls in Afghanistan? How do you, how do you see it? And, and, and realistically, you said you're a little bit hopeful, but what do you think, what do you think about that? And go ahead and talk about lessons learned, the things you want us to talk about here today on, on this podcast.
3: Okay, uh, the prognosis—holy macro! I, I don't think it's that great, uh, actually. But I'm kind of thinking that uh, um, the lessons learned uh, might be more applicable in other theaters. Uh-huh. Doubt very much there's going to be an appetite for either the Americans or ourselves or any other coalition partners to go back into Afghanistan, irrespective of what happens there. I mean, I uh, I got my own uh, hypothesis of what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, can you say China? I'm more worried about them than any other country and they're already there and uh, they're looking at that rare earth and they're looking at those mineral deposits and, by God, they are going to get them out of there, even if there is no infrastructure. That that's problematic for everybody.
1: And that's a, and that's the subject of a whole other uh, podcast. We're going to talk about critical minerals and rares. We're going to talk about China and all of that. But you're right to raise it, Chuck. That's a that's a strategic um, point of importance.
3: But some of the lessons learned. I mean, uh, first of all. Um, and foremost, uh, I'm a big advocate of strategic communications and uh, and information operations. Um, I mean, we started off this whole thing by a hearts and minds campaign and all the rest of this stuff, and it's kind of like oh, hearts and minds. There's something fundamentally wrong with trying to win the hearts and minds of Afghans. I mean, we don't even speak their language, you know. Please, but really, uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to win the trust and confidence of the Afghans for the government of Afghanistan. So it's really uh, a two-pronged strategic comms uh, initiative that has to go on. On one hand, the hearts and minds for domestic consumption, and on the other hand, trust and confidence for the theatre of operations. And that we still don't have a good, solid handle on in differentiating the two and why the two have to go on concurrently and, and, and they have to be aggressive. We have to win the battle of the narratives before we can win the war of perception. So that's first and foremost. Uh, when, how do you win that trust and confidence? How do you get the, the legitimacy? I would suggest that it, it starts with PRTs. And, uh, and the PRTs, not in the way that we traditionally think of it in terms of a military footprint. The PRT that uh, actually my thesis at the Center of Military Strategic Studies was on PRT uh, transformation, uh, supporting stability operations in Afghanistan.
0: You need to, so explain, you need to explain the acronym, Chuck. PRT. The provincial
3: Reconstruction Teams. And, you know, that had a, a history in itself in Afghanistan. I mean, it started off with the special forces uh, deploying their civil affairs teams. So they were small little groups that were, you know, trying to do their stuff of winning hearts and minds of Afghans, again, wrong term. And then they realized that, holy mackerel, there's a lot of work to be done. So it grew into something that we call chiclets. Uh, I can't remember for the love of me what the, the acronyms stood for, but uh, it was based on the, uh, the uh, Vietnam cord, uh, CORDs uh, concept. Uh, So it was much more robust, and it was physically located uh, on the ground and not mobile like the uh, civil affairs teams were. And then eventually that grew into um, uh, joint regional teams, uh, JRTs, which later were rebranded and renamed by Karzai. So President Karzai, he's the one who called them provincial reconstruction teams. And uh, that helped immensely, having the president bless uh this type of capability uh and assisting it moving forward so yeah prts now in my particular thesis the ultimate aim was not to have a military prt but eventually it would transition into being a civilian uh capability and what i have proposed is that the prts be very light a very light footprint on the ground with a huge reach-back capability. In Afghanistan, the only reach-back capability that they were looking at was a tactical one, was how do we get a rapid reaction force to the PRT in the event that shit hits the fan? That's what it was basically limited to. Eventually, us smart Canadians came up with a 3D concept for, of course, defense diplomatic and development okay and then that grew and I think it was the Brits that first brought it on to make it a whole of government concept so these PRTs just grew enormous and with the more people that you had into the PRT the more force protection that you have so they become very large footprint uh, on the ground and that's no longer necessary I am suggesting that the PRC, in accordance with the original concept, has to be co-located in the, in this particular case, in the provincial administration, the Afghan provincial administration centers. And uh, for some reason that was abandoned, uh, but that was the concept and that needs to go back to that. And then we have to start looking at what's, what are the reachback capabilities and that's endless the sky is the limit you could have uh, all the whole of government uh representatives that are back in the homeland that you're reaching back to to provide you with the answers that you're looking for depending on what the need is in that provincial uh in that province and they varied from province to province now i'll leave that aside just for a nanosecond and talk about more in terms of what actually needs to be done on the ground and from the lessons that I learned, some of the fundamental stuff has to happen at a grassroots level. So first and foremost, literacy. Now, why do I put literacy as the first priority? And by the way, during our time there, literacy went from 8% of the population to close to 50% of the population. A lot of that was attributed to the fact that uh, uh, We got uh, about 3 million girls uh, that were back in schools. Um, But we learned the lesson the hard way because as we were building the Afghan National Security Forces... And we were getting close to our target, the Afghan National Security Forces, of course, comprising of the ANA, the Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police, Border Guards, and any other security apparatus that uh, is necessary for any nation. So we built this, you know, humongous uh, ANSF of 350,000 plus armed, mostly men, and... um, we couldn't move to the next step I mean we, we produced a lot of Kandaks which are basically battalions uh, of soldiers and they were good soldiers um, but when it came time to move to the next stage and dealing with capabilities like logistics for example uh, couldn't do it because they were illiterate and we came to the realization when i say we collectively uh came to the realization that we have to be involved in improving the literacy uh of the afghan national security forces so we actually built that in to the construct so a soldier would join the ansf police or army and uh, they would go to grade one literacy and then they would go through their basic training Those that demonstrated any leadership potential went to grade three literacy. And then, you know, and so it was totally embedded the whole literacy program right into the ANSF. One of the second order effects that happened or unintended consequence, which was very positive, is we no longer needed to recruit. Because the disenfranchised men and all the rest of the stuff that couldn't get an education decided that we're going to join the ANSF, become literate, and move on from there. So it was a very positive outcome in that sense. But we never got to a stage uh, where uh, the ANSF writ large was literate enough to be able to sustain itself uh, into more complex stuff. So that's literacy.
1: you know you know what, Chuck on that? What you're reminding me is I think we need to have a whole deep dive on growth and recovery. So you've touched on something, um, and I don't mean to cut you short but but I think it's important enough that we should have a whole nother episode on it and uh, and I know we're getting we're getting close to our ending time here. So so maybe what I'll invite you to do is is just give us kind of a few, a few wrap up comments we'll invite neil to do the same and then we'll we'll bring this particular um episode to a close but we want to invite you back because you're you're raising some really important concepts and realities of aid um internationally and growth which which are rightly connected with what we're talking about, which is Afghanistan, but they're bigger than Afghanistan. So I wanna I want to yeah. give them their due. So let me just invite you to, to, to make a quick wrap comment. We'll invite Neil to do the same and then we'll move forward.
3: The Afghans use sovereignty as the excuse why international aid had to come through the top and go down to the ground. That of course created a whole bunch of problems. And of course, corruption was one of the main outcomes for the government of Afghanistan, and that was a result of just too much money coming in yeah. and not enough capacity to be able to get it down to the projects on the ground. So invariably, they knew that if they emptied the bank accounts, it would be refilled again, and it just made things progressively worse. This way here, the money is going directly at the grassroots level to an individual and... That's how you build up your economy. I mean, there's one other thing that I'll kick in there that I learned from Afghanistan it had to do with land reform. And I'll just leave it there, okay, because uh, the guru on land reform, of course, is Soto in South America. And uh, that is the fundamental of creating a financial and economic uh, capability in a country. So those are my four... Uh, uh, takeaways here literacy, small power, microfinance, and we'll talk about land reform maybe at uh, some other time. But the PRTs need to be on the ground. They are the eyes and the ears uh, that are essential to make sure that things are progressing positively.
1: You know what Neil McDonald's favorite thing is, besides having the first word, is having the last word. So Neil, we'll we'll give you a chance to, uh, you're so shy and retiring, I know I've got to invite you into this, but why don't you give us some reflections here and then we'll wrap up.
0: Well, you know, when you talk about lessons learned, I, uh, Chris Sands works for the Woodrow Wilson Institute. I think the United States of America has to uh, consider how, has to consider in future, just how wilsonian it wants to be Um, you know canada is bound eternally to the united states Uh, will be in our lifetimes at least Uh, we will be invited along for new military adventures we'll have to have that debate and decide whether to go along with it it does mean expending blood and treasure but the question is whether it's worth it and whether uh, you know in, in afghanistan it was certainly worth going in uh, and uprooting um, a, a group of uh, of men who uh, threatened the global order. Uh, whether it was wise to stick around and try to nation-build is something else altogether. Iran was a different question completely. Uh, it, it, going into Iran was utterly mis, uh, misguided. And the United States will, as success, successive presidents take power, uh, decide that it wants to embark on new uh, militarism, and we're going to have to decide whether to go along with it. And I think it should be done coldly and soberly. You and I have had these discussions uh, recently, uh, Scotty. Uh, we need to uh, we need to decide what is in our each other's best interest and approach it not as um, you know hugging neighbors, but as uh, as as level-headed partners. Uh, and where war is concerned, you're always talking about you know young, largely uneducated. Uh, innocent-minded young men and women getting killed in far-flung places for things that they think are noble, but may not be noble indeed, uh, and that's a tragedy when it happens. So uh, I just think that the lesson of all this is, for heaven's sake, uh, next, the, the next, the next, when the next event happens, and it will, uh, is it worth going, and what's the end game, um, and uh, it's it's such an important discussion to have, um, but that would that, that I guess would be a distillation of my experience in watching these things and how they play out in various countries. Well, it very seldom turns out well. It almost never turns out well.
1: Well, you know, we'll we'll leave it there. And I I just have to say I don't know if back a million years ago when you two guys were in high school together, if you ever thought. Uh, you know, you'd be on a podcast together talking about, you know, one of the longest wars on earth. Um, and its' aftermath and what what it all means. but but it's it's really been fascinating um to to have both of your perspectives. We're incredibly grateful to you. And uh, the last, last word goes to my friend, Chris Sands.
2: Well, well, the the last word is really just an echo of the thanks. Um, One of the things I think that makes the Canada-US relationship strong is the friendship among the people at the ground level. And I think politicians come and go, but they steward that and uh, they have to take good care of those connections. But when you put people on the ground, Canadians and Americans, um, that, that spark is there. And hearing you talk about, both of you talk about Afghanistan pro and con, I think that is an echo of what you hear in the United States and we're maybe uh, closer than we think uh, looking back at this experience, I think probably did bring us together as Andrew Andrew Potter suggested. So great to hear from both of you and thank you for being honest with us and and sharing with us your perspectives, looking back 20 years. It's our pleasure.
1: Well, Chris, I don't know what I had as a preconceived notion about uh, when we decided to have these two high school friends from Canada on to talk about their perspectives, one a a seasoned and acclaimed journalist and one a highly awarded soldier. Uh, But that was quite interesting, I think, to hear uh, Chuck and Neil talking about Afghanistan and their different perspectives. And one of the things I really like about it is, you know, Neil's pretty tough. And he asks hard questions, maybe even harder than you and me, and it doesn't affect their lifelong friendship. And that's, that's emblematic. They're two Canadians, but that's how Canada and the United States should be and are when we're at our best. We can ask each other hard questions and the friendship continues. So I, I thought it was a timely and interesting uh, conversation, and, and I'm, I'm, I want to keep talking about Afghanistan and the other Canada-US collaborations around the world. What did you think?
2: Well, you know, very much the same. I I said in just talking a little bit about the scene setter that Canada's role in the war, I think people know it was there, but for many Americans, there's no detail behind that. Not a real sense of what Canada was contributing. Hearing from Chuck about not only what they did, but how important it was to him. Not because the Americans wanted it, but because it was the right thing to do, and and that kind of connection with people on the ground is a really important one. It's one of the reasons our soldiers get along so well. Then, in contrast, you know Neil McDonald sounds like so many of my friends who, you know, after 9/11, you know, initially we have to get Al Qaeda, and then had doubts about the war. And even there, it there was this um, this passion, this concern, this engagement on the topic. And there's a reason that we. I think the Canadians are the most like us around the world. They really do reflect the kind of debates we have ourselves. But for the good of the relationship, we need to listen to the Canadian debates and hear those echoes of our own thoughts because I think that brings Canada and the US ultimately closer together.
1: I think that's right, but they need to listen to us too, Chris. So that will be the last word. (laughs) We're (laughs) we're glad that Canusa Street continues these difficult uh, conversations, and I'm always glad to collaborate with you, my friend.
2: Um, Same here, and at least you let me get a word in edgewise, so I love that about you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Every once in a while it happens. All right, we'll see you next time.
2: All right, thanks very much, Scotty.
1: This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American
0: Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.